Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, March 10th. The monthly jobs report came out this morning, showing continued stronger-than-expected growth in the number of jobs nationally, or as the New York Times put it a short time ago, employers added 311,000 jobs in February, the Labor Department reported, continuing a hotter-than-anticipated streak that has created abundant opportunities for job seekers while frustrating the Federal Reserve in its drive to contain stubborn inflation. Now, this comes after yesterday's 500-point drop in the Dow, partly because the four biggest banks lost tens of billion dollars in one day. We'll explain why. And President Biden unveiling a federal government budget proposal yesterday that launches a season of conflict with Republicans in Congress over taxes on the highest incomes, the federal deficit, Social Security and Medicare's long-term outlooks, plus social safety net programs, that Senator Joe Manchin from Biden's own party blocked last year, especially child care and elder care care. Here's the president yesterday. We found that in the year 2020, when I got elected, 55 major corporations of the Fortune 500 companies paid zero in federal income tax on $40 billion in profit. I introduced legislation making sure that they had to pay a minimum of 15 percent. 15% corporation, just 15%. That's less than any of you pay. Well, guess what? We did those things to grow the economy, create jobs, again, working for class folks with fighting chance. That paid for everything and still allowed me to reduce the deficit. Just begin to pay your fair share. So a Biden budget, some confounding new jobs and inflation numbers, billion in one day lost by the four biggest banks. All of that in just one day's news. Let's try to make sense of all this and put it into larger context with Felix Salmon, chief financial correspondent at Axios. He also writes the weekly Axios Capital Newsletter. Felix, always great to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Awesome to be back, Brian. Let's start with the newest news, the February job numbers out this morning plus 300,000 jobs, usually would say, hey, that's great news. But with inflation, how do you see it today? It's still great news. Um, It's great that people are getting jobs. And in terms of the inflation side of things, the wage pressures that came out this morning, we also get data on how much people are earning. We're seeing the slowest wage growth basically since the up cycle started at the end of the pandemic. So a lot of that idea that wages feed into prices and prices feed into wages, that that thing that the Fed is trying to make sure doesn't happen, seems to be not happening. There are more jobs, but they're not necessarily better paid jobs. And that's what we all all really hoping for. That's the famous soft landing where maybe we can bring inflation down without massively increasing unemployment. Were there certain sectors that hired especially a lot? Have you seen that yet? I I did notice a a kind of corollary article, though it might have been written just before these numbers came out this morning, by business reporter Greg David in the publication The City that says New York City's jobs have almost recovered to pre-pandemic levels 
when they had been lagging the rest of the country for a while. So I'm curious if that's reflected in national numbers with certain sectors now rebounding or growing. Yeah, I think if you have a a big broad-based city like New York, New York obviously has its own idiosyncrasies, but it isn't an industry town, right? We have a lot of different people in a lot of different industries here. And what we've seen is a lot of weakness in certain very specific industries like manufacturing, construction, technology. Um, as I'm sure you've seen all of the headlines about the big tech companies laying people off, that kind yeah. of stuff. While the broad mass of jobs more generally um, is continuing to grow. So if you are in like a hot white collar job, maybe in media, say, then you could maybe have not such a hot job market right now, while overall, you know, most folks are are still seeing jobs, whatever kind of job they want, they can find, they're just maybe not going to be able to get a big pay rise for like switching jobs. Yeah. And one of the things that I saw with respect to New York is that the hospitality industries continue to rebound, uh, recovering further from the pandemic. So does all this mean that the Fed needs to hike interest rates more to discourage as much economic growth and job creation to tame inflation? Or could it mean that interest rates are the wrong tool for the job and raising them just hurts people like who want to buy homes or start small businesses without actually accomplishing the mission of reducing inflation? It's such a good question, and everyone's asking the the Fed chair that exact question. And the fact is that Fed policy works on a lag, right? It doesn't happen overnight. The thing that happens overnight is it affects markets and it affects mortgages. Um, In terms of affecting broad economic growth, inflation, unemployment, the effects are slower. Inflation has definitely come down. It's come down a lot since it was high last year in the beginning of last year and is that because of the fed it's kind of hard to tell to be honest there's this case to be made that it would have come down anyway even if it wasn't for the fed hiking um and you're quite right that maybe now that we're seeing less wage growth fewer people quitting their jobs fewer signs of heat in the um in the price of labor the fed will decide that they can slow down on the rate hikes or even maybe eventually stop them. That said, the you know inflation is still way above where they want it to be. The headline jobs number that you led with this morning, quite rightly, was high at 311,000. And Jay Powell, the Fed chair, really wants to keep on hiking and making it very clear to people that you know he's going to keep on hiking until the job is done. So I have never been so unsure just before a Fed meeting, there's one just coming up, mm-hmm. um, what they're going to do. It will be either a little baby hike of 25 basis points, or it'll be a bigger one of, of half a point. And it's really kind of 50-50 now. And it will all come down to the inflation figures that come come out early next week to see which way they're going to tip, I think. Did you say that wages are now keeping up with inflation or they're not? They're not. No, inflation is higher than wages now. So in in that sense, wages are disinflationary. Wages are where the Fed wants them to be. Yeah, which is unfortunate because you want wages to go up. But of course, if prices are going up faster, uh, then that's a bad thing. And that, I guess, is the paradox. Do you create more unemployment so that future wages 
um, can keep up with inflation. Is there a kind of normal level of interest rates that they should be aiming for? Like, maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but I think when I was a kid, interest rates were 5%. And that wasn't con- that wasn't considered a hit on the economy like five percent would be today. It was just you know my mom took me to the bank when I was a little kid and said, "Hey, let's teach you about money. We're going to open a little bank account for you." She did that, and it was five percent, and that's what you get on a bank account. Or people who wanted to play the stock market could take those risks. Now maybe the two decades of zero interest rates that we're coming out of. Is the weird thing uh, or not? Is there something normal that's not zero, but that's not 20% like it was in the 1970s to curb inflation? Right. You're absolutely right about that. If you look at long-term interest rates, which are the ones that really matter, historically, like they have been in that 3 to 5% range. Um, and you can go all the way back to the 19th century, and that's where they were, and that's where they have been. And that does... if on a very, very, very long multi-century time horizon, that feels like a normal interest rate. And you're right that since the global financial crisis of 2008, we were in this weird aberration period of zero or even negative interest rates. And that does seem to be decidedly over now. So that feels healthy. Maybe we're going back to normal. Maybe rates are a little bit higher than that long-term rate would suggest. You know, you you can put your money in very short-term, very liquid, very safe treasury bills right now and get more than 5%. And that feels like, whoa, that's crazy. So I think rates are high now, but you're right that they could, they don't need to fall a lot to get back to something that feels like it could be long-term normal. So what happened with the big banks yesterday? We don't often see a headline that, you know, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase lose tens of billions of dollars of value in a day. Well, what happened with the big banks yesterday was there was one little bank that really imploded, and that's called Silicon Valley Bank out in California. And it just went... There was a a real bank run. Um, And it's not something which I... It's not a term I use lightly. People don't like to talk about bank runs on radio shows because it can cause people to panic. Don't worry, your money is safe. Um, Even if it's in Silicon Valley Bank, you know, it's all FDIC insured, you don't need to run to get it out. But there was a bank run on Silicon Valley Bank. It was, it had a bunch of balance sheet issues that very nerdily we could talk about, but basically people were worried about it. It now looks like it's putting itself up for sale and it looks like it's very close to the first real bank failure since the since the financial crisis you know yeah. put aside that last bank which also failed this week um silvergate bank but that was a crypto thing so very idiosyncratic silicon valley bank is also idiosyncratic but you get two major bank failures or close to bank failures in one week and people start worrying about the banking system so if it wasn't crypto caused what did cause silicon valley bank to crash well they did a very bad job of managing their exposure to interest rates we've been talking about how the fed has been raising rates a lot and what that did was a couple of things one it had an effect on the technology industry and silicon valley bank as its name implies is overwhelmingly its clients are overwhelmingly tech companies and the tech companies started 
needing to fall back onto their cash that they had raised rather than raising new cash. It, you, you know, as you probably heard, it's a bad time for tech companies to be raising money right now. So they had money in the bank in Silicon Valley Bank and they started spending it, which meant that the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank were going down rather than up. That would normally be fine, except for Silicon Valley Bank had put all of those deposits into bonds. And when rates go up, the price of bonds go down. So what happened is they sold the bonds so that people could take out their money. And when they sold the bonds, they took a $1.8 billion loss. And that's more than like all the profits they've made in the past 30 years. So it's, it's idiosyncratic. It's very much about Silicon Valley and, and the dynamics of what's going on there. But yeah, you get two big bank problems in one week. And yeah, you're right. People started selling Bank of America, JP Morgan, Credit Suisse hit an all-time low. People aren't trusting the bank industry right now. And we're going to turn to the big numbers that Joe Biden released yesterday. But we will ask, is this really for the 2024 budget? Or is this for the 2024 presidential race? Let me tell you what I value with the budget I'm releasing today. I value everyone having an even shot, not just labor, but small business owners, farmers, and so many other people who hold the country together who have been basically invisible for a long time. President Joe Biden from his fiscal 2024 budget address yesterday. Let's talk about what's in it and what it means as we continue with Felix Salmon, chief financial correspondent at Axios. Um, where do we start? There's so much in here. There's the Democrats' social safety net agenda. Uh, there uh, is the question of deficits. Um, there's the question of taxing income over $400,000. What's the first thing that you reacted to when you read the budget coverage? Tax hikes. I think that was that was the thing that really caught my eye first was Biden's attempt to say, I care about the deficit. I care about the debt. We need to get this under control. And instead of cutting spending, my solution is to try and raise taxes on the rich. Um, there's no chance that that could get through Congress as it's currently made, you know, currently put together. But that's clearly his um, fiscal priority. Um, and to do what? Uh, raise tax. And by the way, can we make a distinction? I, I said this earlier in the week, kind of in passing, but you with your expertise in economics can maybe expand on it a little bit. When Biden talks about not raising taxes on income over $400,000, He's talking about income over $400,000. So even if you make a million dollars a year, the first 400000 would be taxed at the existing rates, right? So it's not like from dollar one, if you make a lot of money, you, you pay higher taxes. It's on the income over 400000 Is that correct? That's right. We're talking about marginal tax rates. And this is one of the things that people find really difficult to understand. But yeah, if you have all of your income uh, up to 400,000 taxed at a certain rate, all of that income up to 400,000 will remain taxed at that certain rate. If you earn 401,000, the only income you, you get taxed at the higher rate is that extra 1,000. Now, the president did link that to preserving Medicare for decades to come. He didn't propose anything to preserve Social Security solvency for decades to come. Did he take a dive on something that he should have stepped up to the plate on? 
so I, I, I apologies for, for the big sigh there, Brian. Um, yeah, me Medicare is a real problem because it, there are real questions for how does the government practically pay for that um, if you can't direct money to it from, from various accounts. Social Security, I feel like there's ultimately all pensioners old you know older americans are gonna wind up getting their checks one way or another you know um this is just a kind of more of a gut feeling for me than it is a sort of sophisticated economic argument uh but yeah both of them are seeing outgoings go up the american you know the american population is getting older that means we're getting sicker that means we're more more of us are retired and need social security checks the number of people paying into those programs is not keeping up with the number of people really drawing down on those programs and so yeah we there is a deep sort of need for cash in both of those entitlement programs and this is a start in terms of trying to put together a plan for how to deal with them what this budget is not is a you know multi-decade long-term solution to the solvency of both medicare medicaid and social security right it's it's as you said earlier it's more of a political platform that joe biden can run on in a 2024 election but at least it moves it, it kind of makes pays lip service to to the fact that these things need to be solved we, we just have a minute left we know that a lot of the republican opposition is going to be no we won't vote for that budget because deficits so can you give our listeners a 30 second <laughs> thumbnail <laughs> guide to figuring out the confounding question of how much deficit spending is healthy versus dangerous for the U.S. government? No, it's the short answer. I but no, I can try. The, well, goodbye. We'll talk to you the, in a month. No, the, okay. <laughs> no the, the idea, the, the big idea is that every time the government deficit increases, a bunch of fiscal hawks come out and say, oh, this is going to be terrible, it's going to cause this long parade of horribles, and then the parade of horribles never happens. Um, one of the parade of horribles is always inflation. Don't ask me why deficits are supposed to cause inflation, but that's one of the things. And right now we do have inflation, and it's higher than it should be. And so the people who want smaller government are pointing to inflation as a reason for cutting government spending and reducing the deficit that way. But ultimately... The government can print as much money as it likes. And historically speaking, if you look back over the past 20 years or so, it really, every time they've done that, and mostly it's been under Republican presidents, it hasn't caused inflation. So reducing the deficit is important on the long term because it's like having a deficit that just grows and grows indefinitely until it becomes like two, three times the size of the economy is clearly not sustainable. So at some point you need to get it under control. In the long term, it's important to get it under control. In the short term, it doesn't seem to make a huge difference. And somehow they will have to compromise and hash out a budget for the next fiscal year by October 1st when that fiscal year starts. And by that time, Felix, there will be televised Republican primary debates. <laughs> so just yeah. saying, buckle and, up. And, and, and the Republicans have a majority of five in the House. So this is all going to be really easy. Felix Salmon is chief financial correspondent at Axios and writes their weekly Axios Capital newsletter. Great to have you on, Felix. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure.
Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.